Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Still feels super early. None of these fundraising numbers that we've just discussed for any of the candidates, I think, is an amount where someone would think twice about running against them if they were wanting to run for that seat. Negative infinity. If the negative infinity is an option, I'm going with that one. I think that Republicans would need three or four large red waves in order to win this seat. It's like D plus 22. This is going to be decided in the primary. It looks like it could be a pretty fun primary. This race is, no matter what happens, going to cost several millions of dollars on both sides. Yep. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. All right, folks, this week, Reagan and I were thinking about what we wanted to discuss, and we decided that it would be a great time for an update on congressional races, statewide races, and a couple of shakeups in the state legislature that seem noteworthy at this early stage. So it is November 5th. We are almost exactly one year out from Election Day. There's a long runway until what we're going to talk about actually matters, but it is fun fodder for political nerds like us. And it also, we're going to talk about fundraising numbers that, you know, there's a saying in politics, Emily's List actually is named after this saying, early money is like yeast, it helps the dough rise. So early money, which we're going to talk about today, all the money received today would be considered early money is oftentimes a useful indicator of who's a serious candidate and who is not. Reagan, any wisdom on early political fundraising before we dive into the first set of races here? Well, two things, Ben. We recorded this on Sunday night. I opened the 270 to win countdown clock. We are 365 days, two hours, and 15 minutes until the election. So the countdown really begins. It's one year until the election. And everybody's looking at one-year-out polls and freaking out, and they shouldn't be because those <laughs> polls are useless tomorrow. The other thing about the early money is that it's not as much how much money you raise early. That helps, but it also matters who donates. So you'll look at someone's fundraising, and if you see some big names with small dollars, that probably means those big names are coming in with more dollars later. Because they don't want to, you know, once they invest in a race, they typically aren't interested in losing. And so they'll invest more later on. So a lot of candidates will work their list to try to get their foot in the door with some of the key donors in their regions or for that particular type of race. And then, you know, engage those donors as the race develops to try to keep them interested. So it's a good strategy for candidates. Free advice. All right. Free advice from Reagan Canope and worth every penny that you just paid for it. Okay. So we're going to jump into the first set of races, and that is the congressional races. Yes. There's a big filing deadline last quarter. But actually, Reagan, before we jump into the numbers, I want to start with the race for Congressional District 3. 
Congressman mm-hmm. Earl Blumenauer, longtime member of Congress. Is he the dean of Oregon's federal delegation or did Wyden beat him there? Uh, no, I'm pretty he, sure Wyden. Well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go check. Reagan will fact check in real time. Either way, Earl Blumenauer retiring is a bit of an earthquake in Democratic circles in Oregon politics because he represents a very deep blue part of Portland and the Portland metro area. It actually goes out east. But it's a deep blue seat, and that means that a lot of Democrats want to run for it. So while Reagan is uh, looking at we're, we're not very smart because Earl Blumenauer took the seat that Ron Wyden held when Wyden of went course. to the Senate. So Wyden's obviously been there longer. Wyden got there in 1981 and then 96 is when Blumenauer got there. So, but he is the, he is now the elder statesman in the house for Democrats and Republicans, because there's a story in Capitol Chronicle about how a Walden turned over last or two cycles ago, I think it was, and then DeFazio last cycle and now Blumenauer. And so that's going to leave Suzanne Bonamici, you know, she's got a pretty tough race coming up. Not really. That's a joke. (laughs) But anyway, she's going to be the longest serving. And she got there, I think, in the mid to late 2000s. It is a pretty wild turn of events to have so much seniority turnover all at the same time for Oregon. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we'll go through. So, Blumenauer, first I'll make a plug. You should read the Willamette Week piece where they interview Blumenauer about his decision to retire. A couple of very interesting yeah. things in there. One, he says he's not going to endorse anyone to fill his seat. So, that's big news. It means it'll be a truly open field. And here's what we know so far Multnomah County Commissioner Sushila Jayapal is running. And she's very serious, very serious candidate, in part because she's a regional elected official, in part because her sister, Pramila Jayapal, is a member of Congress from Washington and, importantly, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus in OPB. This is the quote they use about why that matters. Political observers believe those ties will give the county commissioner a leg up in raising funds and making connections, which seems true to me. I think it is an advantage for her in a very serious way. She also had to quit her seat on the Multnomah County Commission in order to run for this. So high Mm -hmm. level of commitment there. The reason she had to do that is because of the Multnomah County Charter, which says you can't seek another office while you are in office. And I would be super interested if that's like a legal limitation that you can really put on people or if people just follow it because no one has challenged it. It was a super one of those quirky Oregon laws like the kicker and until recently not being able to pump your own gas, I guess. But that was um, that was fascinating to me. So a couple of other candidates are in the mix here. Another candidate has declared, and that is Gresham City Councilor Eddie Morales. He's in his second term on the Gresham City Councilor, and he's the treasurer of the Democratic Party of Oregon. He also ran for mayor of Gresham and narrowly lost in 13 votes, Ben. Was it 13? Very close Mm -hmm. election. Very close. So there's a couple of people who are publicly considering they are colleagues in the Oregon State House. One is Representative Maxine Dexter, and one is Representative Travis Nelson. They represent different parts of Portland, Travis in North Portland, Maxine in West Portland. And then there are a whole host of people who are not running. First, the person who I think a lot of people thought might run is former county chair Deborah Kafori. She says she is not running. And then Willamette Week reported that three other people are officially pulling themselves out of the running. One is State Treasurer Tobias Reed, who we'll talk about in just a moment. One is former Portland City Commissioner Steve Novick and former Governor Kate Brown not running for Congress in the third CD. That's the third CD. Reagan, what do you give? uh, What chance do you give the Republicans of taking back the third congressional district next cycle? 
what's the largest available negative number, Ben? <laughs> negative infinity? If negative infinity is an option, I'm going with that one. Uh, I think that would be the it would smallest take about, available negative number, it would, it would, not the largest. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm not very good at math, Ben. That's why I chose politics. Luckily, no math involved in politics. But I think that Republicans would need three or four large red waves in order to win this seat. It's like D plus 22. So no, I would say the Democrats, this is going to be decided in the primary. It looks like it could be a pretty fun primary, but we'll see kind of how it develops. I mean, I think Paul probably has the like early edge. And if there's a lot of candidates, I think that benefits her splitting the vote. If she only gets maybe one or two challengers, then it could be harder. So I think we'll see. And again, we'll note we are recording this on Sunday, November 5th. I think even by the time that this gets uploaded on Wednesday, it is likely that there will be another candidate in the race, or at least possible. I think I think but Maxine has said very soon is when she'll decide. And I think Travis has said by the end of the week. So things are changing quickly. I also know that there's several other people who are rumored to be considering it, whose names we will not say out loud here on the podcast. But I would not be surprised if this is a very crowded primary. I don't believe Ben knows anything special. I think he's just trying to make you guys think he's important. <laughs> you're, you're tempting me, but it's not going to work, Reagan. Uh, <laughs> we are going to talk next about money. Let's talk first about what I think a lot of folks think will be one of the most competitive races in the United States of America. And that is the race for Congressional District 5 where Congresswoman Lori Chavez-Dreamer is the incumbent and raising impressive amounts of money. As of the last quarterly report, this was on October 15th, a couple weeks ago, she had $1.3 million, essentially, in cash on hand. Mm -hmm. She had a debt of about $379,000, and in the quarter, she raised $620,000. I'm starting with her because of every member of Congress in this state. She is at the top, and in some, in, by, for most of them, it's over double. I think the only one who it's not over double in terms of them outraised in the quarter is uh, Congresswoman Andrea Salinas, um, but really impressive numbers there from the incumbent congresswoman. She has three notable opponents in that race. Jamie McLeod Skinner, Representative Janelle Bynum, and Metro President Lynn Peterson. Lynn Peterson raised about $72,000 in the quarter with $44,000 on hand. Representative Bynum raised $188,000 in the quarter with $218,000 on hand. And then Jamie McLeod Skinner is number one on the Democratic side in terms of money. She raised about $254,000 and has about $155,000 on hand. Reagan, what do you make of the numbers? Well, Ben, if I were the Democrats here, I'm sounding alarm bells for a couple of reasons. One, nobody has raised as much as Travis Dreamer has in a single quarter. Nobody's cash on hand comes close. And all three of those candidates have to empty or probably get close to emptying their coffers in the primary in order to give themselves the best shot at victory. And then they have to play catch up again with Chavez Dreamer, who doesn't appear to be drawing a significant Republican opponent. So certainly the Democrats can come in with outside money. They can come in with leadership pack money, right? But the candidates themselves get the best rates on TV. And raising hard dollars is typically seen as a sign of strength. And that's like direct campaign cash. And then the other packs are a little bit more, you know, sometimes they're considered soft money or kind of outside money, but that money doesn't go as far. And so Dems will have to spend more to get caught up. And so I think that you know, it's already going to be tough. And certainly, you know, the registration and other parts of, you know, other advantages that they have will keep them in this race. But it's an early and strong lead for Chavez Dreamer that they really don't want to have to overcome after a messy primary. I think that's right. And I also think, I mean, what would, 
hard to it's very hard to tell this early out but this race is no matter what happens going to cost several millions of dollars on both sides yep. so most of the money that will be spent in this race has not been raised yet by either side and to your point i think some of the, the numbers from last cycle it's really hard to keep straight like dnc numbers biden numbers trump numbers rnc numbers dscc numbers D triple C numbers, but I'm pretty sure that Democrats are outraising this cycle. But now I'm wondering if I'm conflating D trip with no, you're saying yes, that's true. No, I think you're correct. NRCC was lagging D triple C in the last quarter. And I think the US Senate R's and D's are like roughly close. I think the R's might be outraising a little bit because they have a pretty strong slate. I just saw Jeff Merkley fundraising email the other day. And he was like, in order to hold 50 seats in the Senate, we have to win all seven swing races. And I was like, whoa, that is a rough map. I haven't double checked that, but that is it's a very Republican friendly map. If you have to win every swing race in order to hold your Senate majority, that's tough. Did that motivate you to give money to Senator Markley's campaign? Yeah, I smashed I smashed the <laughs> donate button. My act blue obviously automatically populated as I'm a, a strong Democratic donor. And he got my 50 cents that time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so the reason I bring that up is just because as we saw in Oregon last time, a lot of the resources that get spent in these races are controlled nationally, and they're going to yep. look at a board, basically, of races, and they're going to look at polling, they're going to look at demographic data, they're going to look at all sorts of inputs, and then make a calculation about where to spend money. So there's definitely a gap between incumbent and challenger in this race. It's Republican advantage, Democratic yeah. disadvantage. In the next district, we're going to talk about it's slightly flipped, but we should all well, keep this in mind. This seat was Biden plus eight, too. So that's why Dems want it, is it performed really well in the presidential. The seat didn't exist in 2020, but when you overlay the, the precinct data, it's a Biden plus eight seat. So Democrats are right to go after it, obviously. For sure. Yeah. So I was just going to say, like, it's early. The numbers here are indicative of trends, but certainly not insurmountable. And we should all expect these numbers to change. And, of course, the gap to shrink once a Democratic nominee is established here and a Republican nominee is established in CD6. With that... Let's transition to CD6, where incumbent Congresswoman Andrea Salinas is far ahead, not to the same degree. She doesn't have the same net numbers, but the gap between her and her challenger is essentially equivalent. So she raised $424,000 and she has $758,000 on hand. The only declared candidate at this point is former state senator Denise Bowles. She raised just $60,000. And has 45000 on hand, although, Reagan, I believe she got in midway through the quarter, correct? She That's not a full quarter. She did, yeah. There's no – that's not a full quarter fundraising. There's also rumors – I think this has been reported publicly – that Mike Erickson, who was the GOP nominee last cycle, is actively considering jumping in the race again. And if I remember right, he self-funded a significant amount of money. So I, I um, believe he will get in. So I'm pulling up the 2022 numbers for that district. So Erickson spent, well, so he took in the most amount of money, but a lot of that was self contributions, but he spent almost $4 million and Salinas took in and spent three and a half million. And then there was some outside money. I think just on her side though, I don't think the national Republicans came in for Erickson, but yeah, I'm told he will get into the race. He's just waiting because he doesn't need to get in early, and when you're spending your own money, maybe you wait a little longer if you've just spent a bunch. If you've just got $4 million worth of name ID on TV, you have a head start 
when you get into this race. So I think he's just waiting to make sure he can minimize how much he needs to spend in the primary. And that's probably the right strategy for him. Going to be tough to overcome all that self-financing and name ID. The way this board is presented, ours have put all three of four, five, and six on the NRCC target list. And I believe Dems have put all three of those on their target or frontline protection list for the incumbents. Ours believe the fifth is the most obviously likely to succeed because they have an incumbent there. They're actually looking at the fourth next. They think the numbers are better than the sixth district. The fourth district has more rural areas and they think is trending more Republican long-term. Is, and that this, the, is that something they're saying? That's something I believe based on sources I'm talking to. I don't know if it's something they're saying publicly, but people I talk to, they think four, the national folks think four is a little bit more gettable, but we'll see but about on that. But pa- on paper, the fourth is a bigger margin than the sixth, right? Well, it depends on what you're looking at. I don't have registration in front of me. In the last election, Hoyle won by seven points and Salinas by one or one and a half. So if you're looking at the margins that way, you'd look at the six first. But six is a little bit more suburban district and tends to be trending away from ours, whereas fourth has more rural that they think is trending a little bit more their direction. So we'll have so, to wait and see whose theories are correct there. I was going to say, good transition to quickly wrap up our congressional numbers here. Congresswoman Val Hoyle raised 254000 with 374000 on hand, and notably not a single opponent filed against her. And in fact, her opponent last time, Alex Garlados, will not be running against her this time. Why is that, Reagan? Because he decided there was a fourth district he liked better in the Oregon House of Representatives. (laughs) And that is a open Republican seat, which we'll talk about later. But he's got a pretty good shot there. Much more favorable, heavy R-leaning seat. I believe our registration is like two to one. So I think he'd have the advantage on that seat. We'll see if he gets any opponent. So real quick before we transition to statewide office, I do think it's worth mentioning here. And this, I think, probably benefits Salinas and the not and. Hoyle and the nominee for CD5 for the Democrats. Suzanne Bonamici has 584000 on hand, and Earl Blumenauer has 775000 in the bank. They are mm. unlikely to spend all of that. They'll probably keep a lot of it, but I imagine that some of those dollars will be spent on Democrats in competitive seats in Oregon. I don't know that. I'm just guessing. Meanwhile, on the other side, Cliff Bentz has an impressive 910000 911000 in the bank for the Republicans. So there's a lot of money out there in the world in safe seat accounts, and who knows how that will be spent. I think Benson and Bonamici will want to give more to their leadership packs to kind of, you know, build their rapport with all of their colleagues, whereas Blumenauer may be more interested in direct giving because he doesn't have anything to gain by giving it to the D.C. Democrats. So I think that that would be my guess on kind of how those funds kind of broadly get distributed. Okay, real quickly, before we wrap this episode, we're going to talk about where things stand for statewide office. So we'll start with The second in line to the governorship, the Secretary of State's office, obviously we have an incumbent Secretary of State who will not be running for re-election. It is an open seat. Two major Democratic candidates, current State Treasurer Tobias Reed and State Senator James Manning. It's very early in these races. These races will also cost substantially less than the congressional races will, or at least that's the way it looks at this point. That can all change with competitive candidates. But right now, Treasurer Reed has $66,000 in the bank, and Senator James Manning has $33,000 in the bank. Reagan, there's no Republicans filed, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I was just double-checking that on the Orstar Star candidate filing. So hard to win a race when you don't have any candidates. Um, <laughs> right now, Democrats, 100% favorites to win those seats. True. 
you know, as opposed to the usual 120, 115%. But no, I think that Reed is the front runner. I'm looking at my candidate tracker and seeing a couple of rumored Republicans, but I haven't got a sense that they're serious at this point. You know, Manning is, I'm not seeing a lot of strong fundraising yet. So he would really need to flip on the afterburners to make this a competitive fight. But he might get some name ID out of it for a future run for office or something like that. So there are reasons people run statewide that don't include trying to win sometimes. He's also midterm, so he will stay in the Senate if he does lose. Um, Yep. uh, Okay, next office, state treasurer, incumbent Tobias Reed, term limited, cannot run for another term at Treasury. Two major Democratic candidates have filed. The first is Senator Elizabeth Steiner. She is the current co-chair of the Powerful Ways and Means Committee in the legislature. She has $60,000 in the bank. And then Jeff Goodman, former Lake Oswego city councilor and former two-time GOP nominee, for state treasurer. Uh, He is now running as a Democrat. He has raised about $10,000 so far in that race. Ben, I've got a question for you on this one. Are you hearing anything in your kind of circles that leads you to believe there'll be any more strong candidates that declare for these two offices? Because at at this point, I haven't heard anything and it makes me kind of think these primaries are pretty well, you know, set as they are. I have not heard anything, but it still feels super early. Um, It does. Like, you know, none of these fundraising numbers that we've just discussed for any of the candidates, I think, is an amount where someone would think twice about running against them if they were wanting to run for that seat. So I think it's too early to say. I think if you yeah. if there's anyone you'd challenge, it's probably Steiner for treasurer. She doesn't have statewide name ID. Reed has more statewide name ID, although not an insurmountable amount if you really had some serious deep pockets. But I think treasurer is the one where you could see more people, but I think a lot of people aren't interested in taking on either of these just because they know they're tough customers either way. Steiner and Reed are both well-known in political circles, and so that makes them difficult to beat in a primary. Well, so the other thing that I'll mention on this is it is early, and there's a significant advantage to starting early. And it's not just raising money, because in some cases, starting early, you have more time to raise money, but you have more time to spend money. So it doesn't always work out the way that people think it will. But all of these candidates will have a, literally a, over a year to solicit endorsements and build a team of supporters. And those yep. things matter, particularly in voters' pamphlet statements for primary elections. But like you've seen on Treasure Reed's campaign account, he's been endorsed by Governor Barbara Roberts. He's been endorsed by former state treasurer Jim Hill. Senator Steiner on her website lists endorsements from Congresswoman Hoyle, former state treasurer Randall Edwards, the Senate president, the Senate majority leader, um, the speaker, you know, like those are endorsements that are locked up now, right? That that like that are taken off the table. So they start to build on top of each other. They start to look appealing to institutional groups who might be supporting candidates. So yeah, like it's the money's not huge, but the endorsements that start stacking on top of each other do feel impactful. So yeah, that's yeah. what I know about that. So the next race is different than the previous two races, and that is the race for attorney general where the numbers are actually, I think, enough to make someone not want to run. Dan Rayfield, current Speaker of the House, has $270,000 in his pack. That's a lot of money. And Will Lathrop, the Republican candidate, who obviously both these folks still have to win their primaries, but he's already got $146,000 in the bank, which is Mm -hmm. frankly a very large amount of money for a Republican statewide challenger in this political environment in this state. So both of those folks, I think, are unlikely to see a primary challenger in their respective races. 
Yep. The only one who could really challenge Lathrop are the two representatives with law degrees, Representative Wallen and Representative Mannix, and I believe both of them are running for re-election, so they will not get into those races or that's to that even, race. That's not even mentioning the previous GOP nominee for attorney general who was not an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> he okay. was uh, he was weird. Most of us didn't like him, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last category before we wrap up the pod on this late Sunday night. There are a couple there were a couple of noteworthy announcements for state senate over the last couple of weeks. Reagan, why don't you break down what we know? Yeah, so we learned after I think it was Tuesday maybe, might have been Wednesday. Senate District 2 currently held by Art Robinson, who's a Republican, but he's caucusing independently of the Republican caucus. He has been, well, he, he wouldn't be allowed on to file by the Secretary of State based on a rule that they're abasing on Measure 113, which is currently being litigated in the courts or expecting to, uh, oral arguments in December and then a decision from the Supreme Court sometime after that. But anyway, Robinson intends to, Art Robinson intends to run if he's allowed to, if the lawsuit overturns Measure 113. Noah Robinson, his son, one of his sons has filed in the event that Art is not allowed on the ballot. And Representative Christine Goodwin from the one half of that seat in the House has filed to run for Senate, leaving her House District 4 vacant, which Alex Galados filed for, we already talked about. That's to, for an incumbent senator to potentially receive a challenge from a sitting state representative is unique. It doesn't happen very often. And so I think Measure 113 obviously creating a little bit of potentially some angst on the Republican side. And so Goodwin filing to take advantage of that. And also she has been a Republican caucus member of the House side. And so the expectation is she'd probably be rejoin the Republican caucus on the Senate side. The other districts, Senate District 12, kind of EM Hill and some Polk County, I think, and probably pieces of others. The current is incumbent Brian Boquist, who was an independent, although I believe he's re-registered as Republican because when he filed for office again, when he tried to file anyway, his filing showed up as a Republican. He's also barred from running under Measure 113 as it's currently being interpreted by the Secretary of State. So Bruce Starr, who's a former Republican senator previously from Hillsborough area, he is running, he now lives in, I believe, Newburgh, and Dundee. he is running, uh, Dundee, I'm sorry, yes. And he's, I think he's on the Dundee City Council, actually, now that I think about it. And Bruce, Bruce Starr is running, and in that seat should Brian Boquist not be able to make a run. And so those are two, I would say, incredibly solid candidates for Republicans in the Senate in the event things develop as we think they may with Measure 113. If you're adding, you're taking two members who have been independent caucusing, but aligned with the Republicans and potentially replacing them with two people who would actually caucus for the Republicans and also technically flipping one seat back from I to R, even though everyone knows Boquist has been a Republican and voted as Republicans on all of, on all the national sites, everyone's going to write Republicans flipped a seat because it went from independent to R because their data sets are just That's based like on isn't that I, funny, Ben? There is some reporting that says that I flipped House District 25 because it was previously held by Bill Post. So <laughs> I, do take, I do take credit Three for Redistricting years <laughs> are very challenging because ours picked up like four seats in the Senate, but because of the way things shifted, we only picked up one. It's weird. <laughs> the only thing I was going to add on that is what I'm interested to watch. The timing of the Supreme Court decision will be very interesting because depending on how they rule, I think there are some candidates who are filing or who will file who, even if the incumbent Republicans get to run again, they will still have a primary challenger. And I think there's others 
who like, I think, I don't think Bruce Starr said it explicitly in his press release, but he said something along the lines of, I will be, or he's waiting, to, depending on what happens to Senator Boquist or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's some people who are being pretty open about, you know, whether the incumbent runs again is what will determine whether I run. And I think there are other folks who are not saying that in their press release and may end up running anyway. Although, who knows? Uh, I think one way to look at that, and I don't, I don't know if this is how they're looking at this. This is just literally popped in my head, Ben. Starr and Boquist served together before when hmm. Starr was in the House. Senator Boquist was still in that Senate seat and Starr was in the other Senate seat. And so they've served together. So that might be the reason there's a little bit more deference there because they've been colleagues before, whereas some of these others have not served together closely. Mm -hmm. They might have served at the same time, but in different chambers. And so you don't always develop a strong relationship across the aisle. For instance, Ben hasn't really made an effort to talk to me on the Senate side. I'm just a lonely staffer there. He's a freshman member of the House taking all these meetings, right? So you see how it's, it's challenging for our relationship. I would be happy to try to pencil you in in 2026 or so if uh, if you're still interested. Okay, sounds good. I'll, I'll put it on my calendar. Morning or afternoon? <laughs> I'm actually busy there, that day, so let's... Uh, there's, there's a great Ronald Reagan joke, Ben, where this guy in communist Russia... He goes to buy a car and there's a 10 year waiting period because they don't produce very many cars because they're a communist country. They're not a capitalist country. And he goes to sign all the paperwork and puts his down payment. And they say, OK, would you like it delivered 10 years from today in the morning or the afternoon? And oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. He asks. He asks, can he be delivered in the morning or afternoon if he has a choice? And they said, oh, 10 years from now. We're delivering a car. What difference did it make? And he says, well, the plumber is coming in the morning. <laughs> Just a little good Ronald Reagan uh, jab at, uh, at the communists. Simpler times. All right, Reagan, do you have any closing thoughts for this esteemed episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast? Ben, election year is a horrible year, except that it's a great year, except that it's horrible. So I'm really excited for elections and I'm dreading them. And I think that most Americans share that feeling. I think uh, that's right. The Republican primary for president is getting a little ugly and will probably still get uglier as we go through it. Democrats, I just saw, I sent this to you, Ben, but Biden advisors fighting with Obama advisors publicly on Twitter about if Biden should be a candidate in 2024 is not something I would have expected to see. So really, it's just crazy everywhere, Ben. And I would encourage our viewers to, of course, stay civically involved and then shut their computers off and go be people also, because it's still a long, long time into the elections. That's right. Uh, well, my dog has broken into the uh, podcast studio here. So with that, I think it's time for us to leave. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on YouTube. And uh, we will see you back here next week.